I love that. I love that we have this intentional effort to, to pour into our young adults. Uh, apparently, I'm too old to be considered a young adult now. Um, but I'm excited that we are gathered today. Are you guys excited to be gathered today? All right, all right. Um, hey, if you're looking at me, if you're new here and you're saying, is that Pastor Jason? No, I am not Pastor Jason. Uh, my name is Dave Arbogast. I'm the Canton student minister here at Revolution Church. Pastor Jason and our Kenya team are actually still in Kenya. They will be back this week. Uh, and so next week, you'll hear a lot of stories from them. But God has been able to uh, use them. They have experienced some awesome things while they've been in Kenya. They've been able to visit and uh, encourage some of the churches, the revolution churches that we've been able to plant in Kenya, and they've also uh, been able to dedicate our fifth revolution church in Kenya, which is incredible. And that's, that's because of the grace of God, but also because of uh, your faithfulness in following uh, God and, and what he wants us to do in the mission and vision of revolution church. So thank you. Thank you for, for investing in that way. Um, but yeah, they can't, they can't wait to come back and, and share more about what they've experienced. Uh, as far as why I'm here, uh, we got to experience something, as, uh, as Peyton just introed. We got to have high school weekend this weekend. Did you guys have fun? They, they might be falling asleep during the gathering. So uh, if that happens, we'll give some grace there. Um, but high school weekend is a, an intentional effort to get away and spend some dedicated time with our high schoolers in God's Word at a, at a deeper level than we can do just on a, on a Wednesday night. And so we've had, uh, what we'd like to say is that it's more of like college seminars that they get to sit through, uh, where we get to just dive into Scripture and that we get to cover some foundational topics to our faith. During high school weekend, we, we go over the five solas. The five solas come out of the Protestant Reformation, so in the 16th century, uh, the Catholic Church was kind of preaching some, uh, some wrong theology. I say kinda, they were. They were preaching some wrong theology. Uh, they were preaching a, a theology that, that put more emphasis on what the, the papal leadership said, what the, the priests and the Pope said, rather than what the Word of God said. And so there were some people that saw this wrong theology, this theology that said that that the priests were clean, but the people were dirty. And so the people had to go through the priests in order to get to God. They had to go through the priests in order to hear more about Scripture, to actually know what God said. They had to go through the priests in order to get uh, uh, miracles or blessings performed on their life. And usually this, this was through giving money. And so this was all wrong theology because it took away from a personal relationship that we could have with Jesus. And so some people saw this and they broke away or they protested that wrong theology. That's where we get our word Protestant and Protestantism. We are a part of a Protestant church. It is broken away from that bad theology that was happening in the 16th century Catholic church. And so uh, right now, we have a, a set of guidelines that came out of that Protestant Reformation called the five solas. The five solas. Those solas, sola means only. Those solas are the foundational things to our faith. And it's the glory of God alone, grace alone, faith alone, 
Scripture alone and Christ alone. And during high school weekend, what we're doing is every year we're focusing on one of those solas. And the goal is, is that throughout the four years that a high schooler would be able to experience it, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, they would get to experience all five solas. I know what you're saying. I'm saying the math's off there, Dave. Five solas, four years. That's because Christ alone is the sola that intertwines all the other solas. That if it was not for Christ alone, all those other solas would not exist. And so Christ alone is interwoven into every single year that we're gonna be talking about. So this year, we focused on, students, what did we focus on? Grace alone. alone. They're still awake right now. Um, Grace alone. So uh, when we talked about grace alone, we, we had some pretty intense sessions talking about grace. So session one, we talked about being saved by grace alone. Talked about what is grace? And that grace is undeserved favor, getting what we don't deserve. Another way of saying it is unmerited favor. And so if it's getting what we don't deserve, we, all, we talked about what is it that we get? And then we talked about how, uh, I loved how uh, Jeremy Whitehead, our, our Jasper student minister said this. He said that grace isn't just something God does, it's who he is. So we talked about that in session one. Session two, we went through where is the grace of God. So Chris Garcia, one of our our speakers, he he broke down stories throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all throughout Scripture showing God's grace in the lives of people, ultimately showing a picture that led to Jesus and how the grace of God all throughout the Old and New Testament pointed to Jesus. And so we got to see that. And then we talked about how we see that grace in our lives, not just in scripture, but we see it in our lives as well. And then session three, we talked about grace and works and how, why is it grace alone and not works alone? Or why is it not grace and works? Why is it just grace alone? But then we also talked about what what the importance of works is because the Bible does say that works are still important to a degree. So we talked about all of that in those three sessions. This is essentially session four. So you guys get to join in with us in our final session. Now for you guys, you're gonna be like, am I gonna be lost? No, you won't, you'll be all right, right? But before we get into scripture, before we really dig deep, I wanna introduce somebody uh, that will help us get a little bit of a, of a good introduction into this topic that we're gonna embark upon. Uh, the guy I wanna talk about is Bertrand Russell. Got a picture of him here. That's actually the best smile I could find of his. Bertrand Russell is a British mathematician and philosopher. He, uh, he has this infamous saying that is infamous among British mathematicians. Do we have any British mathematicians in the house? Not our demographic, no? Just Tom? Just Tom? Okay. Um, so there, there was this, uh, this statement that he said uh, that became pretty infamous there. He said this, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspirations, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. 
in the vast death of the solar system. Pretty optimistic fella, this Bertrand. No, essentially what Bertrand is saying here is that of all the great things that humans have created, and we've created some great, amazing things, both philosophically and physically, of all those great things, ultimately they're meaningless because the universe, the destiny of the universe is death. And we could look at that and be like, wow, this guy, this guy needs some happy pills. I don't, I don't know what he needs, you know, he needs to have a little more optimism in his life. But in many ways, Bertrand has a point. Bertrand has a point that is un- understandable, right? The world can feel like it's falling more and more into disarray every day. With all the, the disagreement, with all the uh, troubles that we face, with all the difficulties that are going on, we can find that the world is falling more and more into disarray, not coming more and more into harmony, not pulling together. And so we would describe this as sin, that this is the effects of sin in the world, that it's breaking the world more and more, it's making it fall more and more into disarray. So Bertrand can have a point there. But what if, in his mind, he says that the ultimate destiny of the universe is death. What if the end isn't disarray? What if the end isn't death, but rather peace? What if that's actually what the end is gonna look like? Well, Paul actually says that it is. That the end goal is not, or the end result is not going to be death and disarray, it's going to be peace. And so we wanna see in scripture how that would happen. So let's let's look at Ephesians 1. I wanna encourage everybody, open up your Bible. If you have your Bible, open it up. Yes, I'm talking to you. Open up your Bible. Throughout this weekend, we've been encouraging our high schoolers to actually open the word. That yes, it'll be on the screen, the verses will be on the screen, but we want you to open up the Bible. If you have your Bible app, open it up on your phone to Ephesians 1. Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's about in the middle of it. It's uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, if you get around that section of the middle of the New Testament. Easy way to remember that, go eat potato chips. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <laughs> That's how I was taught it, so I still use it. But we've been reading through Ephesians as a church. Uh, Pastor Jason has been leading us through it for a while now, and we've left off at Ephesians 4, 7. But I wanna take us all the way back to the beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 1. I wanna take us all the way back there. But before we read anything in scripture, there's something that we have to know. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Context. Some background information. We say this all the time in Rev Students. Because the Bible is not always going to be the easiest thing to read and understand. And most, our biggest problem is most of the time when we read the Bible, we just open it up, start at a chapter, and just start reading. Which isn't necessarily wrong, but it can lead us into some wrong beliefs if we hit a, su- a subject or a passage that is difficult for understand, to understand, and we might get something out of it that God never intended us to get out of it. So if we have some context, if we know who wrote it, who they were writing to, what was going on in the general culture of that time, 
What were the subjects that they were trying to impress upon? If we know that kind of stuff, then it'll help us better understand exactly what we're reading. So what's some context to Ephesians 1? Well, Paul is writing a letter to the church of Ephesus, to Christians, people that are following Jesus in the church of Ephesus. And we have a picture of of Ephesus. This is a map of it. So it's located in present-day Turkey. In, in in, In the time that Paul is actually writing it, it would have been the region of Galatia. And we can see that Ephesus is actually a port city on the western coast of present-day Turkey, then Galatia. Now, Ephesus was a, a booming city. Because it was a port city, there was a lot of trade that was going on during that time. There, were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of money coming in. There were a lot of ideas coming in, a lot of people coming in. And so there was a lot of diversity, not only in the people groups, but in the thought processes and in the beliefs as well. And so in this city where there were so many different beliefs, so many things that were pulling people in different directions, Paul writes this letter of Ephesians to unite the church of Ephesus, to unite the beliefs of the people that claim to follow Jesus. And so he wants to encourage unity among the people. And he writes this letter to clarify some proper conduct in the church, at home, and in the world. But one thing Paul also wanted to do and was very passionate about doing was to clarify the gospel. There were a lot of different people that were going around spreading other ideas of the gospel, other ideas of who Jesus is and what he wanted. And so Paul wanted everybody to be united in the same true belief of the gospel. And so this is part of what he wanted to do throughout his letters. And so we're going to see that even in his greeting that Paul does this. So I want to read the opening to his letter of Ephesians. This is what he says in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's Paul introing who is writing this. It's Paul. He's not talking to himself here. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So who wrote it? Paul, who's he writing to? The church of Ephesus. Now verse two, this is where where it gets good. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like a simple enough statement, but there's so much depth in just those few words, specifically those words, grace to you and peace from God. Grace and peace to you. Paul actually uses some form, some variation of this greeting in every letter that he writes. Grace and peace to you. So if Paul uses this same variation or the same, the same greeting of some variation in every letter, there has to be some importance to it. So why this greeting? Why would Paul use this specific greeting? Well, let's dig into this greeting. Let's dig into it. It says our word, grace, right? So let's look at that. Let's look at grace. In the original Greek language that Paul writes this letter in, that Greek word that he uses is charis. Charis. Now, last week, Pastor Jason told us that that word charis is the root word of where we get our word, our English word, charisma. Now, charis means kindness or leaning towards to share a benefit, leaning towards someone or something in order to share a benefit. Now, this is actually, this 
word charis is actually the standard Greek greeting. So if you spoke Greek in that time and you were greeting someone, you would say this word. You would say charis because this was the standard greeting. Now, Paul is using this word to say that God is extending or leaning toward these believers to provide them a benefit. So when he says charis, when he says grace, he's saying God is extending a benefit to them. So that's the standard Greek greeting. But then we get to the second word, peace. Peace. The Greek word that Paul uses there is irene. I just like saying that, irene. If I could twirl my tongue, it would sound even cooler, but I can't. Um, but irene. Now, irene is actually a very interesting word because it's actually, in the Greek, it's an invocation of the Hebrew word shalom. So he actually pulls a Hebrew word into this greeting by using irene. And if we know, shalom is actually the standard Hebrew greeting. This is what the Jewish people would say to each other, shalom. And shalom means wholeness, or when all essential parts are joined together. So here we see in this statement, grace and peace to you, Paul uses the standard Greek greeting and the standard Hebrew greeting all at once. Grace and peace. Greek and Hebrew. So what's the importance of that? What's the significance? Well, in that time, there was a big discussion going around of what it meant to be saved, specifically for what it meant for Gentiles to be saved, non-Jewish people. And there was a big discussion that Gentiles, many people thought Gentiles had to become Jewish first in order to be saved, in order to follow Jesus, because Jesus was Jewish. And so they would say, you have, to, uh, you have to conform to our practices before you can be saved. But Paul was a fierce advocate against that ideology, against that belief, because it was not based in Scripture. And so what he says in so many different uh, areas of the Bible, you can see this all throughout the New Testament, Paul argues that Gentiles don't have to become Jewish first, that the gospel is not just for Jewish people. The gospel is for everyone. And we see that even in his greeting, grace, Greek, and peace, Hebrew. Both are there, grace and peace, showing that the gospel is for everyone, not just for the Greeks, not, ju or not just for the Jews, not just for the Gentiles, it's for everyone. So we see some good practical knowledge in that greeting. But not only is that greeting practical, it's also really good theology. I'll explain it. What's the order of that greeting? Which one comes first? Grace. Grace comes first and then peace. And every time he writes this greeting, he says grace and peace. Grace is first, then it's peace. And this is really good theology. Why? Because Paul is saying everything flows from God's grace. Even peace. Peace flows from God's grace. 
Good things, the Bible tells us, every good thing comes from God. And that includes grace. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. Keep that in mind. It's something that we don't deserve. And we get lots of things that we don't deserve. We still get them because of God's grace. But what Paul is saying is that from that grace, peace then flows. And I wanna, I wanna focus on that word peace just, just for a little bit. There's two variations of peace that I wanna, I wanna talk about. The first one is objective peace. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, objective peace. This is uh, when we experience forgiveness from God, the forgiveness of our sins. That basically, when we experience forgiveness, that is objective peace because our eternity, if we've been saved, if we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our eternity is set. Our eternity is set. And we can know that our eternity will be marked with no problems, no more problems in heaven. That's peace. Literally, if we were to say, what is peace? We would, be, we would say, to have no problems. And we know that we will get to experience that in heaven. And so if that's the case, then that is objective peace. So we get to experience objective peace through salvation. But there's also another form of peace, subjective peace. Subjective peace. That's when our hearts learn to rest in Christ's, or Christ's finished work. When our hearts can rest in Christ's finished work, that we get to experience subjective peace even on this earth. Objective peace, that's when we get to go to heaven, we'll, face, we'll, we'll get to experience objective. Subjective, we experience now. Like we can know with certainty, Christ has already done the job. Christ has already defeated sin. And so that means that in the midst of my problems, while I'm still in my problems, I can still have peace. And we get to face that. We get to experience that because of God's grace. Because of God sending his son, we get that peace. Because everything flows from God's grace. Paul is so passionate about this. He doesn't just talk about this in Ephesians, he, he mentions this all throughout his letters. One of the other places he talks about it is in Romans 8. In Romans 8, he's talking about this, these different kinds of peace that we get to experience. He talks about how those who trust in Christ will experience future glory. That's salvation, that's, that's getting to be in eternity with heaven, eternity in heaven with God. That's the objective peace. But then he also says that we experience the presence of God in the Holy Spirit. That's subjective peace, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so therefore, we get to experience his presence now. That's that subjective peace that even though we're in the midst of our problems, in the midst of all the things in this world, we still get peace. And after all of that conversation, this is what he says in Romans 8, 31 and 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, what's that word? Graciously give us all things. See, God's grace 
because of Jesus, through Jesus, gives us this objective and subjective peace that we get to experience. Now, you might think, yeah, that, that makes sense. Of course, we believe that. Well, many religions operate in the reverse. They operate with the thought process of, well, I have to experience peace. I have to uh, get peace from God or my gods through a set of practices first. I have to gain that peace first, and after I've done that, then I will find favor. Then I will find grace from my God or gods. But first, I gotta get that internal peace. First, I gotta, through these practices, through the works that I do, I've gotta gain that peace first, and then the grace will flow from the peace. So many religions believe that way. And we might look at that and be like, well, of course that's, that's wrong. But yet we can fall into that same trap in how we view and deal with God. Have you, have you ever asked this question like, hey, God, if, if I do this good thing for you, can, can you give me a little bit of your favor? Can you give me a little bit of love in this way? Can you give me what I want? Like, I'll do this. I'll do this. I don't want to do this. Right? I, look, we can do this with our money all the time. Hey, God, like, look, I'll give you, I'll give you the tithe. I get it. But you're going to return it tenfold, right? Right? Because that's, that's really what I want. See, we can, we can have that kind of thing that if I give you this, if I do this for you, then you should give me this. If that's, if that's our mindset, that is a works-based mentality. That's saying that we can earn God's favor, that we can earn God's grace. But we should not want that. We should not want salvation to be based on us. We talked about this in, in high school weekend, that there are things that we should want to be based on us. There are things that we should want to be based on us. We should want our grades to be based on us, right? When you were in school, you ever been in a group project that you did your work, but your group mates didn't do theirs, and you get a bad grade because of that, and you're like, why can't my grade just be based on my work, what I did? That's why we want our grades to be based on us, what we do. Same thing with our salary, our income. We want it to be based on our work, not based on our coworkers' work. Or who you marry. You should want who you marry to be based on who you choose, not who I choose. You don't want me to choose your spouse. I'll choose the worst person. No, there are things that we should want to be based on us. Salvation is not one of them. We should never want salvation to be based on us because there's no way we could earn it. There's nothing that we could do that would earn it. But God's grace doesn't just stop at salvation. No, God acts out grace in our lives in so many more ways. So I actually have a, a little interactive piece. If you have journals, Bust open your journals, find a, find a good page that you could use. If you don't have a journal, but you have a notes app on your phone, which is everyone, bust that out. You're looking at me and not finding it. I'm talking to you. <laughs> open up your notes. 
We've been doing this throughout high school weekend. We've been asking our students to write things down, invest in certain things. So let's do this together. If you have it open, I want you to write down just some major moments in your life. Students, you've already done this. So you're ahead of the game. Don't worry. I'm getting everybody to catch up. Write down some major moments in your life. Maybe it was a move, a big move in your life that you did. Or maybe it was getting married. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one. Good and bad, major moments. Some of you are like, I knew I shouldn't have come to church today. Having me write things down. No, write down some of the major moments. Then after that, this is some homework for when you get home. You're like, man, can you stop? No. Uh, The homework when you get home for every major moment, I want you to write down where God's grace was. Where was God's grace in that moment? Where was it? It can be easy to find it sometimes, especially for the good things. It can be easy to find where God's grace was. A little harder in the bad moments, the things we didn't want to happen. It can be hard to find God's grace. Because oftentimes we think of God's grace, today at least, as, if, as in specific acts. That specific, God, God gives us grace in specific acts, like getting a raise or having a kid, or getting that that popcorn kernel out of the back of your teeth, you know that's a good feeling. That's God's grace at work. We look at God's grace in specific acts, almost like it's a a grace care package. Like if you're, you're trudging through the rough wilderness of life, you're running low on supplies, and all of a sudden you look up, and the God plane comes by and drops a care package and poof, it lands right there and you run up to it. You open it up. Oh, yes, hope, love, joy. All right, cool. And you start trudging along, taking more of that as you go until you run low again. And then God sends another plane with a care package. A lot of times we can see God's grace in that way as if it's specific acts, occasional care packages that he drops down. But see, God's grace isn't situational. It's constant. God's grace isn't situational. It's not occasional. It's not a grace care package that drops down. God's grace is a waterfall that is constantly flowing. Think of it like the Niagara. The Niagara doesn't stop flowing. It just keeps going and going, and pouring more, and pouring more, and pouring more down. That's what God's grace is. It never stops flowing. So where do we see that kind of grace in our life? Where do we see that kind of never stopping, always flowing grace in our life? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and eight, three through 8, this is called the blessings section of the letter. This is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He doesn't say some spiritual blessings. He doesn't say the occasional spiritual blessings. He says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If we're thinking of constants in our life, those are two words that are constants. Being holy is a constant. You're not holy sometimes, set apart sometimes, but then other times he puts you back with everybody else. No, if you're holy, you are holy forever. If you are blameless, you are blameless forever. That word blameless means unblemished. So you are without blemish. God doesn't say, oh, you're unblemished sometimes, but then you're blemished other times. Also saying blemished is a really fun word. So these are constants. In love, verse five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This word adoption is not the modern version of adoption that we see today. That word is actually a godly biblical version of adoption where he literally takes us and grafts us into his family, changing our very nature, who we are to be his son or daughter. And that is a constant. He doesn't adopt us in one moment and then gets rid of us the next. We're not a part of his family one moment and then not a part of his family the next. It's a constant. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious, what? Let's say that one more time. To the praise of his glorious, what? Grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. You aren't redeemed one moment and then not redeemed another. He doesn't redeem you and then return you. You are redeemed once and forever through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Same concept. This is a constant. We are forgiven once and forever. He doesn't just forgive you one moment and then comes back around and says, well, well I'm not actually going to forgive you now. If that was a relationship, that's a toxic relationship. We would never want that kind of relationship. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, what? Grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That word lavished that he uses actually means overflowed, that he overflowed his grace upon us. So we see in these verses that through Christ, we receive an identity that consists of constants. We have an identity that consists of constants. An identity is so powerful. It is powerful, but it's often overlooked. We often overlook the impact of an identity because our identity can be based in so many different things. It can be based in our characteristics. It can be based in our titles. It can be based in desires of, our, of what, we what we want. We can identify ourselves with all of these different things, but it can become dangerous to identify ourselves as any, with anything that changes. If we identify ourselves with anything that changes, we are entering dangerous territory. Let me give you an example. So I'm 32. You guys may think that's young. 
Our students probably think that's old. So I'm somewhere in the middle. But I, I find myself, I think of myself as fairly athletic. I played, I played sports growing up. I had a ceiling, because you can just look at me. Um, but I, I, I feel like I'm pretty athletic. And so I, you know, I like to play around. I have, I have a three-year-old, and I have an almost eight-month-old. And so my three-year-old came up to me last week and said, Daddy, I, I want to spin. And so usually when we do that, I grab her by the hands, and we spin around four or five times, and then I put her down, and you know, that's it. This time, she wanted to just keep going. And I was like, yes! My three-year-old, introverted, reserved, delicate little girl is wanting to expand her, her horizons and do something more adventurous. It's like, yes, I'm all for it, let's go. So we spun and spun, and I told her, Riley, you let me know when you want me to stop. And she said, okay. So we spun around and around and around. We probably went around 15 to 20 times. And then she said, stop. So I put her down and we did the whole like, whoa, we're dizzy, whoa. And then we did it again. And we repeated the cycle about four or five times. And then at the end of that fifth time, she was like, all right, daddy, I'm done. I was like, okay, cool. I look over at my wife and I was like, oh, something changed in me. I, my stomach just flipped. My head started hurting. I was starting to like feel woozy and wobbly, something changed. And the rest of that night, I felt terrible. But we put our kids to bed, we went to sleep. The next morning, I woke up and my daughter was yelling that she needed to go potty. And so that's my cue to always get up because I'm a good husband. <laughs> my wife was already awake, so I can't even take credit for that. Um, but so she wanted to go potty, so I get up and I start walking and all of a sudden, I just fall straight into the wall. I could not keep my balance. And so I'm just sitting there gripping the wall, feeling like I'm falling to the right the entire way. I feel my way to, to her room, I take her potty, all of that stuff, and I tell my wife, something's wrong. So she tells me, go to sleep at 9 a.m., I take a three-hour nap. I wake up, I feel a little bit better. But that moment right there, if I had any identity in being an elite athlete, it was shattered. That's the danger of putting your identity, basing your identity in anything that can change. Because the moment that it changes, you lose who you are. You lose your sense of identity. So then what would it look like to identify as something constant and that isn't based on you? What would it look like to identify as those words that Paul said? Things that are constant and not based on you. Let's look at those words. He says that we are holy and blameless. That's not based on you. You cannot make yourself holy. I can't make myself blameless. That's only because of Jesus. He says that we're adopted. You did nothing to receive that adoption. That was fully and completely done by God. He says that you are redeemed. You can't pay for yourself. You can't pay for your own sins. Jesus had to do that. He says that you're forgiven. 
Being forgiven is totally dependent on someone else. You cannot force someone to forgive you. That is totally and completely based on someone else. So what if your identity was based on constants that didn't change and weren't based on you? All according to the riches of God's what? Grace. God's grace is always at work in our lives. Even when things aren't so great, even when we're in the middle of our difficulties, God's grace is still always at work. So where is that grace when we suffer? It can be easy in the middle of our problems, in the middle of our difficulties to say, God, I don't see your grace. I don't see it. We can look at other people's lives and say, my life doesn't look like their life. Why not? Why doesn't my life look like theirs? Pastor Jason, last week, when he was talking about Ephesians 4, 7, he was talking about gifting. And he said this, he said, we all get the same grace, but not all the same gifts. You have different gifts than I do. I have different gifts than you do. We can use that same logic when it comes to our lives and the difficulties that we face. You face different difficulties than I do. I face different difficulties than you do. Our lives are not gonna look the same. Our problems are not gonna look the same. But here's the awesome thing from that. God doesn't want us to face difficulties. He doesn't want us to suffer, but he can still use them. And he does. And the fact that we face different difficulties, different sufferings, means that we get to now reach more people. If we have different sufferings, that means all the other people that don't trust in Jesus are also facing different sufferings. And if we look at how they face suffering and what they get from it, if they haven't trusted in Jesus, they don't have God's grace. Therefore, they don't have God's peace. But if they can look at how we face that same suffering and we have God's grace, God's peace flows from that. And they get to see that even though we're facing the same difficulties, we have peace. And when they look at that and they get to say, hey, you have peace when I don't and we're experiencing the same things, what am I missing? That's when we have the opportunity to show them God's grace. So you see, his constants don't change when we aren't content. His constants don't change when we aren't content. He still calls us holy and blameless and forgiven. He still loves us. Now look, I'm not saying when we face difficulties that we shouldn't grieve those difficulties. We should. But we also shouldn't forget that God's still working in the midst of our suffering, that he can still make beauty from ashes. And that's his desire. See, Jesus's death was to prevent the worst suffering that we could experience. And that was separation from God. That's what our sin does. Our sin separates us from God our creator, our Lord. And there's nothing we can do to get that back. But it's wholly what God did in sending Jesus. That's his grace. 
Jesus coming to this earth, paying for our sins, dying on the cross to do it, and then raising from the dead, defeating that sin. That's the grace that we get to have that we don't deserve. We don't deserve that at all. But because of it, if we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that separation from God is no more. We get to have a right relationship with him again. So you might be in this room right now hearing about God's grace because you need God's grace. You might be facing difficulties, but you have no peace. And God says that we need his grace first. We need Jesus first because peace flows from God's grace. We not only want that subjective peace that we can feel on this earth, we want that objective peace, that salvation, that saving peace, that constant in our life that no matter what is going on, we are secure in our identity. If you want that, if you need that right now, we're gonna give you that chance. We're just gonna pray right now and ask God for that grace. Let's pray. If that's you and you wanna trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I just want you to talk to God right now. Say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner and that my sin separates me from you but I believe that you loved me so much that in your grace, you sent your son, Jesus, to come to this earth, live a perfect life, and then die on the cross to pay for my sins. And then he rose from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death. And I want to follow him the rest of my life. If that was you that for the first time you trusted in Jesus, you accepted the grace of God. I just wanna ask that you raise your hand, raise it high, because this is the greatest day of your life. We have some people that wanna come around to put a Bible in your hand to help get you started on this journey. For those of us that have trusted in Jesus, but maybe we have not recognized the grace of God in our sufferings. We have not given him the glory for the peace that he constantly overflows in our life. Maybe we've seen his grace as care packages instead of the waterfall that it is. God, I pray that we can be so overwhelmed by your grace that it changes our lives, that it changes everything that we do that it changes how people see us so that even when we experience suffering, through your grace, we can still have peace. And that people can see that peace and want to know what is missing in their life so that we can point them to Jesus and your grace. Because God, that is our goal. That is our desire to build your kingdom. So God, let us be so overwhelmed by your grace and the peace that comes from that grace 
that we can do nothing but represent you even in the midst of our problems. God, we love you. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the identity that you give us that is constant and not based on us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you, church.